Welcome to the Activist Insight podcast, which takes you through Insightia's two magazines, Activist Insight Monthly and Proxy Monthly. As usual, I am joined by Activist Insight Monthly editor, Jason Booth. But also here is Rebecca Sherritt, the editor of Proxy Monthly, in a new segment called Proxy Corner. And if you want to hear more about Rebecca, you can by listening to the previous episode where we introduced her to you. Getting into the two magazines, May's Activist Inside Monthly explores the impact of activist spin-offs, Hindenburg's short report on eBank International Holdings, Biogen's vulnerability, Joe Stilwell at People's Financial, and Profile's Gatemore Capital. Whereas May's Proxy Monthly features an interview with Putnam Investments, as well as an article exploring the varying investor attitude towards the Children's Investment Fund's Say on Climate campaign. And the good news is that Proxy Monthly is free to everybody. We'll hear from Rebecca later in Proxy Corner, but first, Jason. So Jason, what have you been up to recently? Well, our next feature that we're working on currently is about the cost of campaigns. With the pandemic and the lockdowns, everything went online. And for the first time ever, proxy fights were waged at a distance and annual meetings were done remotely, which we expect has had quite a profound impact on the cost of actually doing a campaign. That will be in the June magazine. Also, we're looking at a campaign in China, which is being influenced by the threat that lenders in China would withdraw their loans to the target company if the activist won, which is something that isn't likely to happen in a US company, but could quite possibly happen in China, where the banking relationships are quite different. Well, we can look forward to discussing that further in next month's episode. So now jumping into May's magazine, activism slowed down during the pandemic. So why are we seeing people leave established funds and take the risk of setting up their own activist investment firms? Well, this is an ongoing process that happens at all times. But in times of market disruption, you tend to see it more. You saw a lot of funds get set up following the 2008 financial crisis. And the pandemic hasn't hurt the market quite in the same way, but it has opened up different opportunities, particularly overseas, where you're seeing quite a number of new funds being set up where the economies are changing and companies that weren't vulnerable before are becoming vulnerable. So you're seeing some junior partners in established funds saying to themselves, well, I'm here in in Europe or in England or in Asia covering a sector that isn't necessarily the core of what my employer focuses on. And maybe this is a good time to set up shop for myself. I mean, Elliot is a good example. We've seen several funds spun out of there in the last couple of years. This year, we've had one big setup, Palliser Capital by James Smith, who operated out of their Hong Kong office. He's setting up a new fund based in London, but apparently looking at Asian situations. And Sparta Capital, uh, which is based in London, which is also looking at their European operations. Now, that doesn't mean that Elliot is not going to be looking at those areas, but uh, these gentlemen are experts in their particular fields and they have the connections. And I guess they just feel that now is the time to step out and do their own thing. ESG is another area where you're seeing funds being set up because it's obviously an area where it's of great interest right now. And whereas some funds 
you know, this is a subject that they target partially, some of their partners feel maybe it's something that they want to focus on. Most obvious one is engine number one, started by Charles Penner out of Jana Partners. And they just set up last year based in San Francisco, and they are taking on Exxon, which is a very big deal. Another one is Converium Capital, based in Toronto by Aaron Stern. He left Fertree after many years. He set up his own fund, and he's spoken to Activist Insight Monthly and says the disruption in the market has really opened up a lot of opportunities in smaller companies, particularly internationally, which may not be looked at too closely by large American-based funds. So felt it was a good time for him to use his particular skill sets to focus on those areas. So that's really what's driving this trend at this time. Does this mean then that we're likely to see more wolf packs as new funds team up with their former employers to target companies? We've looked into this and we find it's very situation-based. Generally, no. I think a lot of these people, they set up and they want to differentiate themselves. And uh, there's also the risk that the target companies will pick up on this. And they might claim it's some sort of conspiracy. But we do see a lot of cases where these funds invest in the same companies, not necessarily at the same time, but uh, around the same time. So they obviously uh, look at similar targets. And there are cases where you see a lot of collaboration between companies you know, prior and current funds. Good example would be Corvex Capital, started in 2010 by Keith Meister, who left Carl Icahn's operation. And over the years, they've teamed up in a lot of situations, most notably First Energy and Diamondback Energy, and Navistar, another situation where they teamed up. Another interesting case, also including Icon, was MHR, started by Mark Draczewski in 1996, a long time ago. But in one situation in Navistar, the truck company, they teamed up together and both demanded changes at the company. But later on at Lionsgate, they were on opposite sides where Icon was demanding one thing and MHR was demanding something quite different. So it really depends on the situation. But in generally, we don't see a whole lot of it. And in last month's edition, you profiled the campaign at energy giant Exxon. But this month, you are looking at a Steelwells value campaign at People's Financial. So what's going on there that people should really be paying attention to? Well, People's Financial is a small company, about $100 million market capitalization. So it's obviously far, far smaller than a company like Exxon. And uh, you might think that the only thing they have in common is that they're both based on the Gulf of Mexico and do a lot of business down there. But People's Financial is an interesting case study on the challenges that an activist faces when they go after a small locally based bank that has been used to doing things its own way for a long, long time. Now, People's Financial is publicly traded, but it's run very much like a family-owned organization. The current chairman and CEO, Chevis Swetman, he took over running the bank from his father about 20 years ago, and his father took over from his father many years before that. So the same family has been running this bank since the early part of the 20th century. And there are signs that they want to hand it over to the fourth generation, as Chevis Swetman's son is a senior executive at the bank and looks to be groomed to take over in the coming years. Now, Joe Stilwell, who runs Stilwell Value, you know, he's dealt with a lot of community banks. And given the 
apparent nepotism at this organization and the fact that the stock price has been sort of a, a consistent decline for about 10 years, it would seem like it was a pretty uh, easy target. And other activists raised concerns at this bank before. And he was aided by the fact apparently, that they have what's something called cumulative voting at the bank, which basically would have allowed Stilwell to multiply his votes if he voted for one candidate, and he put up one candidate for the bank. So it would look like a pretty strong bet. But in this case, Trevor Sweatman appeared too quick for Joe Stilwell. And earlier this year, they called a special meeting and managed to get enough votes to remove the cumulative voting from the bylaws of the bank which basically will make it much, much harder for Stilwell to win a seat at the upcoming annual meeting. And just to be sure, they also put in certain measures in the, in the bylaws to protect the existing directors against shareholder lawsuits in case that should be coming down the line. So we'll be keeping an eye on this case and seeing how the vote comes out. But Stilwell has said that even if they don't get a seat at this point, they're not going away because they are long-term investors and they will continue to push their cause as long as it takes until they get some sort of resolution. So then going back even further than just last month, a decade ago, drug development company Biogen was targeted by Carl Icahn. He exited years ago, but you say that the company is once again vulnerable to activism. So why is that? Many of the issues that Icahn was targeting a decade ago have come back to haunt this company. Major drug development companies uh, live and die by the patents that they produce, and they are facing what is called in the industry a patent cliff. A bulk of their 14 billion revenue comes from multiple sclerosis drugs that are coming to the end of their patent cycle. They are Tysa Brew, Tech Fidera, and Vomeritin. Excuse my pronunciation on those ones. Their patents will be expiring in the next few years, which at that time will allow generic drug makers to come along and produce them for cheaper sales to clients, which will hurt the sales of a big company like Biogen. So unless they can produce new drugs to fill that void, it's going to be a challenge. It's going to be a hit to their revenue. And activists might claim the company and the current management hasn't done enough to uh, deal with it. You know, among the arguments they could make is that as they wait for the drugs that they have in development to get through the clinical trial process, which can take years, they should be out there spending money on late stage assets, you know, drugs that have been in development and have been going through the trial process, but under the ownership of a different company, that they should spend the money and they should buy these assets so they can fill their pipeline of you know, drugs and maintain their revenue stream until their own drugs come into the market. Now we'll touch on Activist Insight Online's latest in-depth article. Because we are always looking to expand our offerings to clients, we have a new type of in-depth called the trend, which deep dives into a current topic and asks the key questions. So Jason, the latest delves into M&A in the banking sector. So why is the banking sector seeing more merger and acquisition activity these days? Well, we have certainly seen a pickup in it. We've seen 23 companies in the financial service segment, including banks and insurance companies, are subject to mergers and acquisition activist demands in 2020, which is the highest level since 2015. What's driving this is, is a multifold. One is, you know, the banks had faced a lot of headwinds 
first of all, low interest rates going into the pandemic, and then the pandemic itself threw off the economy in many ways. But there is a sense that some of these headwinds are starting to reduce, the economy is coming back. And there's a sense among a lot of activists that, you know, the bank, their managers have had enough time to deal with these situations. And while some management companies have risen to the occasion, others have not and shown that these banks would be better run by different management teams or they should be teamed up with bigger banks. And as we look at in the magazine this month with People's Financial, you know, some of these banks have been underperforming for a long, long time. And there's a sense that uh, now is the time to, particularly in the smaller banking sectors, the community banks, and bring them together. Now, another thing, a pressure point is digital banking. As we've seen in many areas, digital payment and online banking have become standard and the pandemic has driven, has accelerated that trend. So again, that's another area that is putting pressure on the banking sector. And there's a feeling that you know the banks that have been managed to adapt to these changes and, and embrace the new opportunities should be given more support, whilst those that haven't should maybe be folded into the better run organisations. How then sustainable is this trend? Well, people think it's going to be sustainable for some time. One sort of a technical point to consider is that index provider, the FTSC Russell, is expected to reconstitute its indexes in June this year. And many of the smaller community banks will be thrown out of the Russell 2000 index. Now, that will reduce trading in those shares and maybe reduce analyst coverage. So that alone could produce pressure for some of these trading companies to be merged. We've heard that 77 banks may be excluded from the index. So there's a good deal of banks that could be looked at as maybe needing to be teamed up with other larger institutions so they can remain in the index and uh, receive the investor interest and analyst coverage that they deserve. And you can find all of our in-depth articles under the News tab on Activist Insight Online. And you never need to miss one again because you can simply set up an alert straight to your inbox whenever we publish an in-depth piece. In fact, you can do the same with all of our products. Just visit our website to set your alerts up. And if that particular piece on M&A interests you, you can read it for free by visiting our social media pages where we posted a link to it. So on Twitter, that's at Activist Insight. And on LinkedIn, just search Activist Insight. We've also put the link in the episode description. Usually, though, these in-depth articles are only available to subscribers. And now it's time for Proxy Corner. So welcome, Rebecca. Hello. Thanks very much for having me. The May issue of Proxy Monthly will be available towards the end of the month. What topics and trends do you explore? Our lead article this month is all about TCIC and climate campaign and the many varying investor attitudes towards the campaign. These proposals, which seek to provide advisory climate votes at company annual meetings, have received quite mixed reception so far this year. Some companies have said that this will boost board engagement with climate concerns, whereas others have expressed concerns that the same climate campaign might reduce direct accountability or even increase the risk of greenwashing. In our article, we've asked a variety of fund managers, including TCI themselves, as well as State Street, how they feel about the Sound Climate campaign, as well as recent votes at companies like Nestle, Santos and Canadian Pacific. 
And as always, a new campaign always raises a lot of questions for fund managers. It's difficult to know how best to vote on proposals like this when your proxy voting policies may not necessarily align with things like this. And even proxy advisors like Glass-Lewis are also finding it difficult to know how best to advise companies to vote on proposals like this. So there are always a lot of questions about sound climate. And have there been any other big developments in the shareholder voting world in recent weeks? There has definitely. Recently, social issues, specifically shareholder proposals calling for racial audits, have received a very impressive level of support, despite being a relatively new kind of proposal. Proposals seeking racial audits have received 33% support at Johnson & Johnson's annual meeting recently, as well as at companies like Abbott Laboratories. Some of these have even been supported by BlackRock, who have themselves agreed to conduct a racial audit in 2022 of their own operations. Another interesting thing about racial audits is that the Securities and Exchange Commission is also starting to deny exclusion requests for proposals of this kind, as they have done at Amazon as well as Johnson & Johnson. As more proposals of this kind are subject to a vote, it will be interesting to see if more proposals of this kind gain increased support, as the SEC denies more exclusion requests. And compensation has been a recent hot topic. Yeah, this proxy season, there's been an impressive number of shareholder revolts, especially in the US and UK. Compensation schemes have been subject to a significant amount of dissent, with already multiple in the UK and US failing to receive majority support. To alleviate investor concerns, a lot of fund managers have now been recommending companies implement ESG metrics in their compensation structures. In a white paper earlier this year, BlackRock recommended that fund managers and companies do implement ESG metrics, and many have already done so with great success. Yeah, so can you give some examples of those? Well, Boston Properties gives a mix of diversity, climate and leadership goals a 50% weighting in its CFO's incentive plan. Similarly, packaging company Sealed Air has tied long-term incentive payouts to the company's 2025 and 2030 emissions reduction targets. It's becoming clear that ESG metrics in compensation are key to boost all-round performance, as well as assuring shareholders that executives are working hard to tackle a wide variety of issues. And we mentioned our new format with the trend pieces as part of Indebts. So can you tell us about your trend piece? Proxy's first trend piece is following on from my prediction in the February issue of Proxy Monthly that lobbying proposals will be subject to increased support this year. And we're pleased to say that this prediction certainly proves to be correct. There's been an impressive level of support this year for shareholder proposals seeking lobbying disclosure. One proposal has already received majority support at ACOM, or several proposals at companies like Walt Disney, Boeing and Maximus have only fallen slightly short of majority support this year. This also hasn't gone unnoticed by issuers. Several issuers, such as First Energy and Molson Coors, have actually agreed to voluntarily disclose their political spending after engagement from the New York State Common Retirement Fund. And likely there'll be many more soon to come, as proposals of this kind continue to gain majority support. That's it for today's episode. Make sure you subscribe to each magazine by emailing subscriptions at insightia.com. Remember that Proxy Monthly is free of charge for everybody, just like our special reports. And the latest of those took a definitive look at shareholder activism in Europe, including content from Activist Insight Online and Proxy Insight Online. You can download your copy from the reports page of our website. Plus, join the conversation by using the hashtag ActivistInsightPodcast on Twitter 
And if you want something discussed on a future episode, all you have to do is email press at insitia.com. Finally, please do rate and review the podcast on whatever platform you are using because it really does help others access our reporting. I'm Kieran Paul. Thank you for listening.